French philosopher Voltaire, in his work Candide, created a character named Master Pangloss. And Master Pangloss, he, Voltaire mockingly described as teaching the metaphysico, theologico, cosmologology. Now, if that is, is a mouthful, it is meant to be a mouthful. Voltaire is mocking. Voltaire writes that Master, Master Pangloss could prove to admiration that there is no effect without a cause, and that this is all the best, the best of all possible worlds. It is demonstrable, said Pangloss, that things cannot be otherwise than as they are. For all things have been created for some end. They must necessarily then be created for the best end. Observe, for instance, the nose is formed for the spectacles. Therefore, we wear spectacles. The legs are visibly designed for stockings. Accordingly, we wear stockings. This is Voltaire. Now, Voltaire was a cynic. He is mocking the Christian worldview, the view that God is sovereign over all and that, is, that God has made all things for his own good and glorious ends. He pre presents Pangloss as an insufferable optimist who is obviously out of touch with reality. Voltaire is saying, how could this world, with all of its wars, and, and all of its, its poverty and suffering and death, how could this world be the best of all possible worlds? Now, although Master Pangloss's logic is, of course, backwards in the examples he gives, spe spectacles were made for noses and stockings for feet, not the other way around. But that is precisely where Voltaire gets it wrong. As a deist, Voltaire denied that God acts in the world. He denied miracles. He denied the deity of Christ. He thought that, that man could, through reason, find moral virtue. But wisdom was not accessible to Voltaire because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so Voltaire, according to the word of God, was a fool. Voltaire, when he considered what was going on in life around him, he, he judged the story by the middle. He did not look at the end for which God was creating the world and the end to which all things were working according to God's wise and sovereign and good and loving plan. And Voltaire failed to consider the fact that the world was in the state that it was was because of man's rebellion in sin. And Voltaire failed to understand that even man's rebellion in sin God was, although not the author of that sin, was using that sin in order to glorify his own name as he in his love and his mercy sent his son to die on the cross. Voltaire could not understand the wisdom of God in the world because he failed to see history through the lens of the most important event, the cross. So don't judge the story by the middle. This is the best of all possible worlds because God created this world to bring glory to his name. We can only begin to understand that as we consider everything in light of the cross. This morning we're continuing our study of the attributes of God as, we can, as laid out in the Baptist Catechism. The Catechism asks, what is God? And responds, God is a spirit 
infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. When we begin to understand better who God is, we are changed. We begin to, to be able to worship him better for who he is. We, we are humbled before him. We see our need. We see our need for Christ. We see our need for the cross. So this morning we're going to be considering the attribute of wisdom. God's infinite, eternal, unchangeable wisdom. Paul Washer says that God possesses perfect knowledge of all things, past, present, and future, immediately, effortlessly, simultaneously, and exhaustively. He is omniscient. There is nothing that is outside the realm of his knowledge. At this very moment, and in all moments, God knows everything. And he doesn't just know everything in actuality, he knows everything in possibility, in contingency. God doesn't just know everything that, that happens and will happen in this world, he knows everything and everything that could ever happen in every possible world, and every possible permutation and combination of that is all under the omniscience of God. He knows everything. He knows everything. And he is working all things out for his glory. For his glory. So we need wisdom in order to be able to understand God's wisdom. We need God's Holy Spirit to help us. Robert Raymond explains that true wisdom and knowledge depends entirely upon God's wisdom and knowledge. And God's word is the only sure and utterly objective and dependable source that we have of that knowledge. It is only in God's light that we see light, Psalm 36, 9. So we seek to understand God's wisdom, but God's wisdom is, is, is beyond us, immeasurably beyond us. So we need His Holy Spirit to work in us, to reveal Himself to us in His Word. And there are three key areas where God's wisdom is displayed. It's displayed in creation, this is testified to in His Word. It's displayed in His revelation, and it is, it is displayed in His redemption. So first of all, we see God's wisdom in creation. God created everything. Genesis 1.1, the first sentence in the Bible declares, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 42.5 says, it, it will develop this, saying that the Lord created the heavens and stretched them out. He spread out the earth and what comes from it. He gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. God made everything through his power. Sing to the Lord a new song, for by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Psalm 33. And he also made everything through his wisdom. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts. Who, him who be understanding made the heavens. Psalm 136. And so like the poem by Cecil Alexander, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. Every mountain, every hill, Every cloud, every grain of sand, every fish, every bird, every bug, the Lord made them all. And he placed every star under the heavens. We sang about this earlier from Psalm 147, 4 and 5. 
He determines the number of the stars. He gives them all their names. Great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. God determines where every drop of rain falls. And every drop of rain that ever fell and ever will fall is under His sovereign care. <coughs> and so as we think about uh, about the, the drought that we've experienced, as I walked out of, the, out of the church yesterday evening, I wondered, what is this wet stuff falling from the sky? I was reminded that God was sovereign over every drop of rain. And that's why we, we are in drought conditions in Western Canada and in Eastern Canada that they're experiencing flooding and, and, and thunderstorm after thunderstorm. God is sovereign over every drop of rain. God's wisdom is linked with His power. His omniscience is tied to His omnipotence. And we're going to be talking about God's power, Lord willing, next week. But, but God knows all things, and nothing that happens is outside of His control. J.I. Packer explains it like this. He says that omniscience is governing omnipotence. Infinite power is ruled by infinite wisdom. And this is a basic biblical description of the divine character. And that's been, been, it's a testimony throughout Scripture, it's, it's the testimony throughout the history of the church that, 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 that people who have looked to God's Word to understand who He is have declared and have worshipped and have gloried in God's ultimate and extreme omniscience and omnipotence. But one theologian, Jerome, in church history thought it was unworthy of the divine majesty to let it down to this, that it should know how many gnats are born and die every second, or the number of cinches and fleas on the earth. But the Bible clearly points to God's exhaustive knowledge of such things. The, the, the Bible says that a sparrow cannot fall apart from God's knowledge. This isn't just hyperbole. God really does know with every sparrow falls, every feather on every sparrow, every Flee on every feather, on every sparrow, is, is not hidden from God's sight. Likewise, all that the hairs of our heads, and for some of us, that, that is, is really not a big job, but, but for others who, who, have, who, who are gifted in, in hair growth, God is, is even sovereign over every hair of their head. He knows it all. So God's wisdom is on display, not just through the initial act of creation, but also in the way that He sustains His creation. As you sit here this morning, you might be tempted to, to complain about what God is, is doing in your life, or, or maybe from your perspective, not doing in your life. In, in trials, you might be tempted to question God. Now, I've heard people say it, that it's okay to question God. But is that really true? Is it really okay for us, a, a finite creature, to, to question the omniscient, omnipotent God? How did that work out for Job? When you think about the, in the book of Job and, and all the trials that, that Job faced, and then finally, towards the end of, of, of the book of Job, Job questions God. He says, why? How does God respond to Job? Does he, does he take his, his arm and put it around Job and say, okay, Job, you know what? I get it. It's been hard. 
No, he doesn't. He essentially says to Job, who are you to question me? Who are you to question me? He, he says in verse, uh, verse 4, chapter 38, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Tell me if you have understanding. Again, he's saying, who are you to question me? If you're tempted to question God, and, and, and I know that, that most of us at some point have probably been tempted in that regard, if we've, but if we've actually gone into to a questioning of God, we actually sin in that way, may we, like Job, place our hands over our mouths and repent in sackcloth and ashes. God made you. God made you. Those three little words have so much significance. Let's just meditate on them for a moment. Now, I don't mean when I say meditate, I don't mean empty your mind like in Eastern mysticism. I mean fill your mind. Fill your mind with, with what God says when, when He says, I made you. Hold this thought up in your mind and, 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 and examine it from different angles like you would look at the facets of a diamond. That's what it means to meditate biblically. God made you. And so when we think about the fact that, that, that God made you, one of the places you really need to, to look is, is, is clearly in God's Word. If you look with me in your Bible, please, at, at Psalm 139. We, we read it last week, and you know, so many of God's attributes are, are there in, in Psalm 139. But, but just look at for a moment at verses 13 to 16. He says, for you, this is David speaking, he says, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful, wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And what is David's response in verse 17 to, to this, the, the, this glorious thought of God's, the way that God sovereignly and, and wisely made him? He says, precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Precious to me are your thoughts, O God. He, he's not just saying here that, that your thoughts towards me are precious. He's saying that God's thoughts are precious. That God's thoughts are precious. Are God's thoughts precious to you? I, I trust that as we as we consider the, the, the wisdom of, of God in creation, that his thoughts will become increasingly precious to you. Did you know that you are the crown of God's creation? You are the crown of God's creation. I'm not just talking about believers here. I'm talking about unbelievers as well. That, that humanity, men and women, are the crown of God's creation. Because men and women are made in the image of God. When my, my second son, Owen, was born, just almost a year ago, I, I remember so well seeing him for the first time. My, as my, my, my heart overflowed with emotion. It was such an amazing birth. He was, was so healthy. 
He was, he was born in our home. He was born actually in the room that would, that would become his bedroom. Now with Liam, our first son, it was very different. He was in a room full of doctors and nurses and medical equipment. And, and almost as soon as he was born, he was whisked off to the resuscitation room. Also very powerful and very different emotions. But Liam was no, no less knit together in Jane's womb by God's sovereign wisdom and God's sovereign power than Owen was. Every muscle, every joint, every ligament, every bone was put together exactly the way God had sovereignly intended. That Liam was made in the image of God every bit as much as Owen. But we live in a, in a culture of death where, where the medical system is saying, well, that child for whatever reason, has, has, no, has no right to live. Who are we? Who are human beings? To be able to, to, to determine who has a right to live. We are made in the image of God. We can get images of a baby developing in the, in the uterus, so we can get insight into, into the, the creation of a human being more than, than, than David could in one sense because of the, this modern technology. But in order to really appreciate what's going on here, you need more than ultrasound. You need the Holy Spirit. God, in His infinite wisdom, again caused the various cells in our bodies to come together perfectly to create a human being, and by perfect I say in his intention and his definition of perfect. Just think for a moment about the human eye. The pupil dilates to let light in. And that light is focused through the lens and is transmitted to the retina, which contains photosensitive elements called rods and cones that, that convert the light that they detect into an image that the brain then that is sent along the optic nerve to the brain, and then the brain, the brain converts that signal into something that, that is understandable and, and comprehensible to us. And each of these is a miracle of God's design. But evolutionists claim that, that these, these different elements come together through random chance. That they, they just randomly, all these different elements of your eye came together to, to form an eye. Do you realize how irrational that thinking is? It's, it's, more, it's far more unlikely for, for a human eye to develop by chance, let alone any part of your body, it's, it's far more unlikely for anything in you to, to be formed by chance than it is for you to drop a bomb in a junkyard and end up with a 747. It just will <coughs> not happen. You are God's creation. God created you. But God did not just create processes that would result in organs like eyes. He created you personally. He created you individually. He knit you together in your mother's womb. Fellow Christian, He foreknew you. He predestined you. All those who are, are, are His people, He has foreknown before the foundation of the world. 
And by foreknowledge, that doesn't just mean he knew everything you would do. That, that foreknowledge is an intimate knowledge. It's the same word that is actually used to describe the relationship between Adam and Eve. That, 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 that Adam knew his wife. This is an intimate knowledge that God has of you personally. That God ordained every single event that would happen in your life. All of His plans and His purposes that have come together in your life to conform you into the image of Christ. This is further what it means when we consider that God made you. That God knows you. Your every moment is under His sovereign control. Psalm 90.12 says, Teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Just look at, at one particular element in your life. Think about the, the circumstances that came together in order for you to, to meet your spouse. Maybe some of us here are still looking forward to, to, to that event. But just think about, about all that came together in God's providential plan. Just, just think about the, the difference that, 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 that a, a missed phone call or missed bus or traffic light can, can make in the, in the way that, that your life comes together. But God is not just sovereign over all of your phone calls and, and traffic lights. He's sovereign over everybody's phone calls and traffic lights. Through all of creation. And, and, and not just at this moment, but, but in all the world, throughout all time. And again, all of these things, even the most seemingly minute and mundane details of your life are being used by God to cause you to grow into the image of Christ. They're all being used of Him so that you will glorify His name. But we don't just rely on our experience to see these things. Again, we need, we need to interpret these things in the light of God's Word. Even creation, when we, when we look at the world around us, Romans 1 says that the creation testifies that, that there is a God. The, the creation testifies to the fact that there is a creator. Now that was the, the, uh, the philosophy that, that, Volt, that Voltaire uh, ridiculed. But creation does testify to the fact that there is a creator. That's the, 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 the theological term for that is called general revelation. The general revelation will, will demonstrate that, that God is real. But in order to understand really who God is and what He's doing, we need special revelation. We need to go to God's Word. So let's examine then God's wisdom in Revelation. According to uh, J.I. Packer, he says, If we want wisdom, we need to reverence God and receive His Word. God's wisdom is seen in God's Word. Please, if you will, turn with me in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1. To 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses, in verses 16 to 21, Peter testifies of his witness of Christ's transfiguration and the audible testimony of the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Just think about what Peter said. Peter actually heard the voice of God. And we, we know that every time he heard Jesus speak, he heard the voice of God. But he heard God speak from heaven with his own ears. But think about what he says next. 
is even more astounding. He says, but we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He's saying, even though I heard God speak with my own ears, he's saying the Bible is more reliable. The Bible, the same Bible that you hold in your hands is more reliable than if you audibly heard the Word of God. Now, I've heard many people say that they heard God speak to them, and, and I've heard many people say that they heard God speak to them to say things that do not line up with God's Word. God is still speaking to His people. He is still speaking to His people through His Word. In order to understand what God's Word is, you need to understand how God's Word was transmitted to God's people and how God's Word came to us. In 2 Peter 1.21, Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God's Word is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative. Every single word in the original manuscripts of the Bible says exactly what God wanted it to say. Every single word. God gives the prophets their wisdom and their knowledge. But this is not just prognostication. This is predestination. This is not just foreseeing the future. This is foreordaining the future. God knows the future because God makes the future happen. God's wisdom can never fail because His omniscience is tied to His omnipotence. Understand? God's wisdom can never fail because His omniscience is tied to His omnipotence. Again from Packer. Again, just, just hear this. This is infinite power ruled by infinite wisdom. Infinite power ruled by infinite wisdom. Now we're going to focus on God's infinite power again next week, Lord willing. But, but these attributes are naturally tied together. God is, is wise in heart and He is mighty in strength. Job 9.4 So when God declares something in His Word, it must be. And we talked about a couple of heresies a few weeks ago. Open theism and process theology. Open theists get it wrong and say that, that God limits His understanding or knowledge of the future. The process theologians go even further. They get it worse when they say that, that God has limited knowledge of the future. So the one says that God limits it by himself and his own decree, and that's wrong. The Bible shows that again and again that's wrong. But even worse are those who, who say that, that God is limited, that he doesn't even really know exhaustively the future. This is heresy. And these heresies are, are really gaining credence even in the visible church. If you want to understand who God is in His wisdom, you need to read your Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis through to Revelation. In the storyline of the Bible, you see a 100% accurate de description of what has taken place, of what will take place, and the one who is orchestrating everything and bringing it all together for His purposes, for the glory of His name. It's the storyline of the Bible. From the, the first sacrifice of an animal to provide skins to cover Adam and Eve, to Noah's sacrifice, to 
Abraham's, the command that God gave to sacrifice his son, and then God's provision of the ram in the thicket, through to the sacrificial system, it all pointed to what God was going to do in Christ. And it continues to point ahead to the return of Christ. The Bible records what Almighty God is doing in history for the glory of His name. But it's not just in the narratives of the scriptures. It's there in the poetry. Psalms 21 and 31 and 69 and 109 point to Christ's crucifixion. There's, there's many more. It's just a sampling. Psalm 2 and 24 and 45 and 110 point to His return. It's also there in the prophetic books. Isaiah 9 and 14 speaks of Christ's birth. 700 years before Christ was born. Isaiah 42, 1 to 9, and Isaiah 49, 1 to 13, 54 to 11, and 52, 13 to 53, 12 are, are the four servant songs that speak of the work of the Messiah, the suffering servant. Daniel 9 and Zechariah 12 and 13 point to Christ's sufferings and death. Daniel 7 and 9 and Micah 5 and Zechariah 14 point to his return. It's all through the Bible. It's all through the storyline of the Bible. What God is doing in his wisdom to bring all of history to its appointed end. Well, that brings us finally to God's wisdom in redemption. God's wisdom in redemption. There is no greater display of the wisdom of God than the cross of Christ. No human mind could ever have devised such a plan. That God the Father would send His Son to live a holy life and to fully obey all of God's commands. That He would be the only one to love His Heavenly Father with all of His heart and soul and mind and strength. That He would be the only one to love His neighbor as Himself. That God would fulfill His own commands. And then that, that he would die. That, that he would, would willingly give up his life. Not just to be killed by men, but to be punished by his heavenly father for our sins. And not just that, that three days later he, he rose from the grave and is, is ascended to the right hand of God. No human being could ever have comprehended anything like that. I've said this many times, but there's really only two religions in the world. Christianity, where it is all done for you, or every other religion where you must work to achieve your own salvation. There are only two religions in the world. Ours and everything else. No human being could ever have concocted such a glorious plan. Yet it was God's plan from the beginning. The cross was not plan B. God wasn't surprised when, when Adam and Eve sinned and, said, and wrung his hand and said, Oh no, what am I going to do now? The cross was his plan all along. In Acts 2, 22-24, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. This Jesus, hear this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. 
loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yes, human beings have responsibility, but it was all under God's omniscient plan. When you think about God's omniscience, that God sees everything, everything that, that you have, have ever done, everything that you will ever do, every thought, as David says in Psalm 139, before a word is on my lips, the Lord, you, you know it all together. When you think about God's omniscience, that God sees everything, that God knows everything, everything about you, how does that make you feel? Does it make you feel like, like Adam and Eve in vain trying to, to, to cover yourselves with, with fig leaves? To hide from his omniscient gaze? Does it make you fearful? Or does it comfort you? Because you understand that the omniscient God, according to his wise plan, has sent his son to die for your sins. Again, from Paul Washer. For the Christian, God's omniscience gives us a great sense of comfort because God knows our every need, understands our every trial, and has given us His infallible word to guide us through life. For the unbeliever, God's omniscience brings terror because their every thought, word, and deed is laid bare before Him, and He will judge perfectly, not allowing any sin to go unpunished. God is omniscient. Are you here this morning as a believer? Take comfort. If you're here as an unbeliever, take heed. Now, I'm not saying here that, that, every, that, that if you consider God's omniscience and, and you feel fearful, uh, I'm not saying that necessarily means that you're not saved. It might be an assurance of salvation issue. There might be unrepentant sin that you are walking in. That there, there might be something deeper that God wants to do in your life. It might, be a, it might even be a, a doctrinal problem that you don't understand God's sovereignty over your salvation. So if, if you're here this morning and, and you're, you're really grappling with this and you are feeling, you're, you're feeling fear, under the omniscient gaze of God, then, then please come and talk to me. I, I want to be able to walk through these things with you from God's Word. But an accurate understanding of God's wisdom will transform your understanding of what God is doing in your life. It is so easy to have a wrong understanding of suffering. But it's imperative that you understand, fellow Christian, what God is doing in your life. It is imperative that, that you understand that, that every circumstance in your life comes to you from the hand of a, of a good and sovereign and wise God. It's imperative that you understand this, that even the most tragic of circumstances in your life was tailor-made for you, again, even though God is not the author of sin, and, and ordained for your ultimate good and God's ultimate glory. Beloved, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that, that we are the children of God, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8, 16, and 17. All through the scriptures, Old and New Testament, you can see what, what God is doing through in and through the suffering of his saints to make them more like Jesus. Don't be like Voltaire, failing to understand history because you fail to understand the cross. Don't fail to understand your own history, your own life, because you, because you fail to understand the cross. J.C. Rao said that in light of the cross, the greatest insult you can give God is to doubt His love for you. That the greatest insult in light of the cross that you can give is that to doubt God's love for you. Because whenever we doubt God's love and, and what God is doing, what we're really doing is, 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 is we're doubting His character. We're doubting that, that He is for us. Romans 8.32 says, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will we not also with Him graciously give us all things? Do you need better evidence to understand God's love for you than the cross of Christ? The same is true also as wisdom. You need greater evidence of God's wisdom than the cross of Christ. God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are infinitely higher than our ways. So much of what man considers wisdom is the exact opposite of the wisdom of God. If you want to become great, you become a servant. If you want to become rich, give up what you have. If you want to become, if you want your life, give up your life. God's wisdom turns our wisdom on its head, or, or rather, God's wisdom takes, takes our wisdom that, that was upside down and turns it the right way around. We can understand who He is and what He's doing in our lives and what He's doing in all of history. God's ultimate purpose for you is for you to glorify Him forever. And He will accomplish that best possible goal through the best possible means. And those means often include trials. Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God, helps us to see that, that God in His love will always wills what is best for us. And that in His wisdom, He always knows what is best. And in His sovereignty, He has the power to bring it about. Consider all that the wise God has done with and for His people throughout history. Consider all that the wise God is doing for His people now in this present day and consider all that He will do for His people in the future through His wisdom. It is a glorious mystery and it leaves us crying out with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. Romans 11.33 Let's pray together.